Christ is risen. Amen. Praise God. And um, this is a hotly debated topic. And yet, it is so astounding in its truth and in its power. And it's so relevant, it's so necessary. This isn't just religious rhetoric. This isn't just religious sloganizing. But this is reality. This is life and death. You know, they say that there are lies, terrible lies, and then there are statistics. And um, there is one statistic that is actually always true. 10 out of 10 people, 10 out of 10 people die. There's no getting around that. Death is something that is relevant to us all. Some of us have been touched by the pain of losing a loved one. Some of us may have even come into near-death experiences ourselves. And in this day and age when people um, live very um, YOLO-oriented lives, you only live once, live for the moment, it does seem really quite concerning that people wouldn't think about what lies after. Now, I say that people wouldn't think about, because obviously some do. And um, we know that at funerals, there are often many sentiments shared um, from the emotions of one's heart without really thinking rationally, what does that really mean? The most common sentiment at a funeral They've gone to a better place. We'll see you on the other side. Even if they have no belief in God. That is a very common sentiment. And yet, those same people who may even profess to be atheists, when engaging rationally with the issue, would say, well, there is no afterlife. And there, furthermore, there is no proof. But that's a lie. It is an outright lie. And I have absolute confidence in saying that. Why? Because Christ is risen. You lot don't sound like you're sure. Come on, work with me today. Christ is risen. Amen. Now, there was one person who, um, given some consideration to the afterlife, um, put this question up on the internet. Now, most people are familiar with, with Google as being the place to go and get your questions answered, right? <laughs> well, this individual, they put their question up on this website called Quora. Q-U-O-R-A. And their question was put on this site because this site is claiming to have the best answers to any question. The best answers to any question. And so this person's question was, can I freeze my dead body for 2,000 years? Keep my money legally safe in an account earning compound interest? Thaw out my body 2,000 years later? Reanimate and repair my body and then live the life of a billionaire. This was a, a, a genuine question presented on a genuine website. Now, to be honest, I didn't even bother to look for what answers were offered. There seemed to be very little point because there was either going to be no or it's not yet possible or someone's going to say yes. Give me your money. I will freeze your dead body and check you 2,000 years later. <laughs> and it sounds hilarious, but even the very revered and notable king of pop, Michael Jackson, was said to have investigated cryogenics at one point in his life and the possibility of freezing himself in order to be brought back to life 
when technology caught up with the idea. You see, the reality is that we all want more than this. Our hearts were created for more than this. We were created for more than this. And we have this longing in our heart that says we're not satisfied with death. We're not happy with death and we never could be. C.S. Lewis, the, the famous author, said, when I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, I can only conclude that I was made for more than this. One of my favorite quotes of his. When I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, I can only conclude that I was made for more than this. And so as we look at our text today in John chapter 20, we see and appreciate that truly we were made for more than this. And there is a way to obtain it. And that is through the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. I thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your loving kindness. I thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are the unfailing God, absolutely true and consistent with yourself. And the fact that you would reveal yourself in Jesus Christ to us, a sinful world, a world that you created in your image, in your likeness, a world that you created with intrinsic value on that basis and with dignity. And yet, a world who have rebelled against you, you've revealed yourself in Jesus. And not only have you revealed yourself, but you have revealed eternal life. You have revealed the meeting of our deepest need. And yet, we understand that seeing very often is not believing. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see this. That you'd give us hearts to embrace this, Lord. In your name and for your glory. Amen. So we have been in a series called Superman HD. Superman being a reference to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate and true definition of the phrase Superman. They've um, revived the Superman franchise. Some people have been out this weekend to see the latest installment, Superman versus Batman. And um, yet again, the, um, in somewhere within the story, Superman's um, weakness for kryptonite is somehow exploited, as you would expect. I mean, if a superhero's got a weakness, then you would expect to exploit that, right? I'm not going to talk out the film for those of you who are intending to see it. And yet, we see that apparently Jesus Christ's weakness as a human, his greatest weakness as a human, served to be the revelation of his greatest strength. Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully human and yet fully divine. Without compromise, without confusion, Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine. Both natures coexisting in one person simultaneously. It's a mystery. And at this juncture in the story, as we get to John chapter 20, we see 
a startling, startling event take place. Jesus' disciples and friends have witnessed him murdered. Literally overnight, within the space of 24 hours, he was arrested, beaten, scourged to a pulp, nailed to a wooden cross, and he died. Their teacher, their friend who they had walked with for over three years on a daily basis, gone, taken, cruelly. The disciples had scattered. There were just a few at the foot of the cross as he hung there, bleeding and dying. But the others had scattered. And yet, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So Mary Magdalene is the first on the scene. She arrives. She sees the stone of the tomb rolled away from the entrance. And at this point, she actually doesn't go in. Seeing the sealed tomb now open is such a shock to her that she doesn't even chance going in to, to see what she's going to find in there. She runs straight to Peter and John to tell them. John in this account is referred to as the other disciple, which was often a writer's um, approach to including themselves in the story or identifying themselves in the story and yet with humility. And so it's something that John commonly done. And so Peter and John raced to the tomb. John being the younger man obviously got some pleasure of writing in the account that he beat Peter to the tomb. And yet maybe as the younger man that explained his kind of cowardice because he got to the tomb door and he waited. Like, now, who likes walking through graveyards at night? This says that it was early in the morning while it was still dark. Remember, they go into a tomb. You can understand a brother's hesitation. You're walking in a grave. You just have to walk by a gra graveyard and hear a, a, a tree brushing on the railing. And you're like, start calling on the Lord. <laughs> Thinking it's a duppy. So John got to the door and he waited, understandably. But I ain't going in there. You have to understand it's dark in there. But Peter, true to form, with his bombastic self, he just runs up and bowls in, like, what? Mm. And as he goes in, he sees the linen grave cloths 
laid out. Now, when you think about the linen grave cloths, you might um, be thinking of what you might be accustomed to seeing in like the mummy and them kind of films where the, the Egyptians would um, wrap and embalm the dead. But similarly and yet differently, the Jews would wrap the dead, but they wouldn't use thin wraps like a bandage and go all the, round, all the way around and wrap tightly. But they would just use one main sheet over the torso and midsection over the legs and then one over the arms and then a, a headdress. And the body would be tied so that the limbs were close together and would be laid out there. Often expensive linen was used for this. And as we read previously, um, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had come with 75 pounds of spices. Now, that's quite a weighty amount of spices that were used to... Um, it was basically like glorified um, Febreze. It, it wasn't necessary with the view of trying to preserve the body, but to try and um, minimize the smell during the decomposing process. It seems evident that from the other accounts, Mary Magdalene and the other ladies were going to the tomb to complete what they suspected hadn't been finished properly. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus begged Pilate for the body. They took him, laid him in the tomb. They would have washed him prior to that. But everything that they'd done had to be done before the Sabbath because it was against Jewish law for them to handle a body on the Sabbath, therefore defiling themselves. And so this now being the day after Sabbath, first day of the week, these ladies were intending to go and complete what hadn't been done properly. Now, when you think of a tomb, there are maybe many different images that you have in your mind. I want to try and give you a, a depiction of what this tomb may actually have been like. And this is based on these images are taken from a, a, an app called the Glow Bible. Um, it's available on. Hang on a second, Ari. Here we go. Can you see that? Ah, it was always going to be a struggle. But what you're looking at there, if you can see it, is a garden tomb just outside Jerusalem. It's not pro proposed to be the garden tomb where Jesus was laid, but a typical example of the type of garden tomb that's common around Jerusalem. And this would have been a, an example of a tomb of a, a very wealthy person. Obviously, all of this masonry, all of this stonework was cut by hand. No Black & Decker, no Hilti power tools. And so it was very labor-intensive and would have cost a lot of money. And so what you can see there is a, a, a disc-like stone. A disc-like stone. Growing up, I always had the, the impression of a big boulder that would have been <laughs> rolled up against the... But this is actually the kind of stone. And, you know, don't be deceived. It, it might look quite slender and sleek, but you're looking at at least two tons of stone right there. 
And so what they would do is they would um, put the stone on a slope so that when it came time to close the tomb, they would just pull out the stopper that was preventing it from rolling and it would just roll across nicely. So closing the tomb was easy. Opening it now was a different matter. Very often when opening the tomb for any purpose, they would only open it sufficiently for a person to get inside, to squeeze inside, because it was so difficult for the stone to be rolled away. In fact, you know what, let me just go inside. All right, that's going to be very dark for you to see, right? Bro, turn these lights off, please. Let's see if it makes any difference whatsoever. Just flick it off. Flick it right off. All right. So what we see here is inside the tomb, if you're able to see anything at all whatsoever. And inside the tomb, I'm going to move it just so that you can begin to see some of the definition. There are two aspects shown. And what the, the photographers, have, photographers have done is they've interposed some different type of interior structures together. They've put the archways, which are like um, the arches going into the wall where bodies would be laid. And you can imagine that a tomb of this nature was often prepared for families. So there would be multiple areas for bodies to be laid. Some, some um, tombs didn't have these arches, but they would just have these kind of little seats or shelves where bodies would be laid. And so here we see the, uh, an example of a wrapped body. This is the body here, and this is the head um, laid out on the tomb. Thank you, guys. That's great. And so this would be the kind of example of the tomb interior. They would often have little spots here in the wall that they cut in for lamps. So when you come in with your lamp, you just rest it on the wall so that you can do what you're doing. And this would be the entrance. And so the stone that you saw outside would lead through a little chamber tunnel like that into the, the tomb area. And so this is a, a more clear representation of what the tomb situation would have been like, knowing that this was a, a rich person's tomb and Joseph of Arimathea was regarded to be a very, very rich man in Jewish terms, very, the upper echelon. Also a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the exclusive um, elite group of 70 that ruled um, the Jewish um, community, ruled the Jewish nation. And so you can appreciate now John coming to the tomb getting to the door, but not going in. Because there was quite a lot of in to be gone into. And Peter's gone straight in, and he's observed the grave clothes laid out. <clears throat> now, it's helpful to keep these things in mind, because people would like to dispute the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm going to... Um... Take this off.
if I go back to my thing. The resurrection of Jesus is a problem. <laughs> it's the biggest challenge of the Christian faith. Josh McDowell said this in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. After more than 700 hours studying this subject and thoroughly investing its, investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. Either or, there's no in-between. Either this is the most wicked hoax, or it is the most fantastic of history. Now, Josh McDowell was a lawyer and he dedicated a season of his life to make a name for himself by disproving the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He knew that if he could disprove that, Christianity would crumble as a belief. And he would be esteemed greatly as the man who brought down Christianity. No surprise that at this point in his life, he was an atheist when he set out on this journey. The reality is that as he investigated the resurrection of Christ from a legal perspective as a highly trained lawyer and professor, he progressively came to the place where as opposed to bringing Christ down, he had to bow down to Christ. He's written a huge book on the um, detail in his research and his findings throughout that season. The book's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's an excellent book as a reference to all of the investigative issues around the resurrection and the recording of it. He examines the accounts themselves for what they're worth in terms of their, their own internal evidence. He, he examines the concept of the resurrection and looks at the reports. And ultimately came to the place of surrender to Christ. This is something that has been widely um, exposed and shared and also experienced by others. Another book that you may have heard us mention over the past um, few weeks of the series is um, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He was an investigative journalist who likewise sets out to undermine the reality of the resurrection only to be turned to Christ. And so, what is it that the naysayers, that people would have to say about the disappearance of Christ's body? Some say he wasn't actually dead, he just swooned. Um, that doesn't actually warrant any kind of realistic consideration because both the Romans... Um, the Roman governor, Pilate, and the Jews ensured that he was dead entirely and absolutely. Jesus, as we read earlier in John 19 or in John 20, had the spear pushed through his side, certifying his death. So Jesus was very dead. Another account would suggest that, okay, um, he was dead, but his body was stolen by his disciples. His body was stolen by his disciples. Again, a very unrealistic proposition, a very unrealistic suggestion when you consider the realities of the situation. So we understand from 
Mark's gospel, when Joseph of Arimathea went to plead for the body, the Jews came also and said, listen, we heard that this guy said he was going to come back from the dead. And we don't want his followers to fabricate any kind of resurrection and therefore make him a hero. So set a guard over the tomb. Pilate said, you have your guard. And so there was a Roman guard stationed outside the tomb. Not only that, but the, 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 the um, stone of the tomb was sealed with Pilate's seal. And so there would have at least been um, a wax, hot wax application marking this site of government um, authorized access only. Some um, depictions show red ropes tied around the, 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 the stone along with the seal so that it was clearly visible. Whichever way you look at it, this site was marked as being under Roman rule, under Roman authority. Anyone who, break, who would break that seal would do so at the cost of death. So you have the seal, you have the guard, and then you also have the practical reality of rolling this stone away. So this is what the suggestion actually amounts to. The disciples came. Now, there would have had to have been more than one because no one person is going to roll that stone. The disciples came, and in some way, they either overpowered these trained, vicious Roman soldiers, or, even more ludicrous, the Roman soldiers were sleeping. Both notions are ridiculous. And having done so, they've then rolled the stone, gone inside, taken the body, but they've not just taken the body. What they've done is they've unwrapped the body. Now imagine, you're in the tomb, in the dark, knowing that at any moment, these Roman soldiers that are either sleeping or you've knocked out are going to get up and come in and kill you. And you're going to spend time unwrapping the body with all of the spices and everything else that's in there. Don't make no sense whatsoever. They've left the grave clothes and taken the body to some undefined location. See, even the real consideration of the real facts of the matter don't make sense. When you consider the evidence, we recognize it can't be the case. You see, if the guards had been found to be wanting, they had been found to be in error, they would have been killed. There's no way that they, anyone could have got in past them without waking them up. The noise of the stone alone would have woken them. Furthermore, if the guards were sleeping, how would they know it was the disciples that stole the body? Too many inconsistencies. The evidence is overwhelming. Now, if it were just that alone, we'd have a lot to rejoice about. But then when we consider the fact that God predicted his Messiah would rise from the dead. According to prophecy, the Messiah would come and be raised from the dead. A couple of examples. Psalms 16, verse 10, a thousand years before Christ. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. A specific reference to the fact that the Messiah would not experience corruption in death. There are a number of scriptures, including Psalm 22 that we looked at previously, and also Isaiah 53, that speak of the death of the Messiah. And amongst Jews, they understood Isaiah 53 to speak of the Messiah, 
although they didn't understand how it could work, that the Messiah would come and die. They knew that Psalm 22 would speak of the Messiah, these Psalms of David. And in these Psalms where it declares the death of the Messiah, it also declares activity after the death of the Messiah that the Messiah would engage in. So how could the Messiah engage in activity after death if he was still dead? Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now spoil is a reference to victory and overcoming in battle. And so you've overcome in battle, and you're going to share that with the strong. How are you going to do that, Messiah, if you're dead? It's not just that prophecy predicted, but Jesus himself had the audacity to predict that he would come back from the dead. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now you could say, hmm, that's a bit interpretive. But look what follows next. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So those prophecies all made sense in that moment. Those predictions, they believed the scripture and what Jesus had said. Interestingly enough, as we look at the disciples' arrival at the tomb, we see that the disciple who went in, who arrived first, went in and he saw And he saw this unusual set of circumstances. These grave clothes laid out neatly in place, but no body. And it says he believed. There's an an implication there. What's being implied is that Peter, at this point, didn't believe. It only states that John did. And there's somewhat of an explanation offered. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they knew the scriptures spoke of it, but they didn't understand it. And even at this point, Peter hadn't put two and two together. Which again, actually suggests that this is a very authentic account. Because when you're confronted with the mysterious and shocking occasion of someone being raised from the dead, for most of us, it's going to take some time to get our head round. Jesus said this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Huh? I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Imagine, someone's planning a bank robbery. All right, guys, this is how the plan's going to go. We're going to go in there, and um, you're all going to pull your guns out, hold everyone up. Um, We'll wait for the police to come. You guys make your escape. The police will shoot me, but don't worry. I'll lay there, dead. And when their backs are turned and they're not looking, I'll get up again and go in the vault and get everything that we came for. They would never expect me because they shot me dead. Are you actually really going to chance going on a bank job with someone so crazy? And yet Jesus says, I have the power to lay it down And take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. So just in case they didn't really get it. It's like he emphasizes the point. I'm in control of life and death. Now anyone can say that. Anyone can say that. But actions speak louder than words, right? The tomb was empty.
Luke records an even more explicit statement by Jesus. The Son of Man must suffer many things, this is Jesus speaking, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. You see, the evidence is overwhelming. God predicted that his Messiah would be raised. Jesus came as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the revelation of the Messiah, and he affirmed the predictions by himself making such outrageous claims. Outrageous. Jesus wasn't talking about freezing his body and being reanimated sometime later. It's clear that Jesus was talking about getting up from the dead. And so we see these evidences. The evidence of the empty tomb. The body had disappeared. So Lionel Lockhu is regarded as the world's most successful lawyer. He's from Guyana. And um, this man is noted to have had 245 consecutive murder case acquittals. Back to back, 245 cases, one acquitted. And even the one or two cases that he initially didn't win, when they were presented to the judge on appeal, the evidence was upheld and the win went in his favor. This is a man who has been greatly recognized for his contributions to law and life. He is a man who holds great distinction, having been honored four times by the Queen of England. He's actually been knighted twice. Not just once, but twice. Because he's so nice. (laughs) This man has been the only man to serve simultaneously as ambassador of two sovereign countries. This is a man of substance and stature. He's not what some might consider a lightweight. This is a man of nobility and notoriety. Look what he says at the top of this article from 1996. Guyana lawyer says he bases belief in Christ as saviour on the evidence. Now he's a man who knows how to assess evidence. And he bases his belief, his faith in Jesus is not just because he grew up in a Christian home and that's what he was taught. It's not just because, you know, it sounded like a good idea to him or it made him feel good when he thought about that after. No, he said it is based on the evidence. Everything I do is based on evidence. Jesus made the most amazing statement ever made. I am the resurrection and the life. Then he died on the cross and three days later he rose again. This is the emphatic statement of Salinal. You see, like Josh McDowell, like Lee Strobel, like many others, he has impartially and unbiasedly considered the evidence for Christ's resurrection fairly and squarely and found himself able to put complete faith and confidence in it as being sound. Jesus is truly risen from the dead. Now, if it were just the empty tomb, 
there would still be many questions. But our text goes on. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. So it wasn't just that the body of Christ disappeared from the tomb, but it's also that Jesus himself appeared from the grave. He appeared to Mary And we understand, as Bertram highlighted earlier today, that Jesus was seen by over 500 witnesses at once. It's interesting because if the disciples were wanting to concoct a story that would convince people that Jesus was resurrected, even though they had stolen the body, this would be the worst story in the world. The last thing they would do is put the first witness of the risen Jesus as a woman. You see, in Jewish culture, the testimony of a woman was dismissible in court. It was considered to have no weight or authority. And so if they wanted the world to believe this testimony, they wouldn't have written Mary in as the first witness that would have completely undermined their story, showing that this isn't just some made-up story. This is an account of the facts. Jesus is truly risen. Mary sees him and clings to him. And Jesus is like, let me go. And you would imagine, she's just seen him mutilated and killed And now he's standing there alive. Her master, her teacher, her friend with whom she was so familiar, just at the call of her name, she recognized him. And we see something here in Mary's experience. Jesus had yet to ascend to the Father. Now, There wasn't a sense of Jesus saying, look, you can't touch me like hammer. You can't touch this because, you know what, you can't defile me. I haven't been to the Father yet and I can't get no fingerprints, no like tarnishing on my my gums or my clothes or my body. And so keep your hands off me. That wasn't what he was saying. What he was saying is this and something that we would take well to hold to our hearts. Don't hold on to me for merely earthly value. You saw me died and you were sorrowful. And I'm back, and you're glad, and you don't want to let me go, and you, you, want, you want to have the comfort of me being with you, present, physically, here, now, like we used to be. But no, don't hold on to me in that way, because I have to go to the Father and fulfill my heavenly duty. So many people... First and foremost, like Peter, don't believe the evidence. And you know, I would be as bold to say this. That really is a matter of choice. Why do I say that? C.S. Lewis, another one of his quotes that I love. 
He said there is sufficient evidence to convince anyone who is willing to believe. Anyone who is willing to believe. If someone's not willing, they will never choose to believe. They will choose every excuse and every justification other than to accept the facts. And yet, there are those who will choose to believe in Jesus, but for purely of earthly value. Jesus, I want you to bless my mess and give me my best life now. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I came for. I got, a bigger, I, got a bigger, I got bigger fish to fry. I got bigger issues to deal with. I have an eternity that I'm securing for you. Not just earthly, mere earthly benefits. And so, would you cling to Jesus merely for the earthly benefits? For the comfort, for the provision, for the joy, for the status, for whatever it is that you might seek in the here and now? Jesus would say to you, I ascend to my Father. I go up to another level. I'm going up to the level of the Father to fulfill the Father's will. And in doing so, he serves as our eternal mediator, our eternal go-between. Tim Keller, in his tremendous book, The Reason for God, said this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. All that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And so what will your choice be? You see, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus died for sinners. And yet, God raised him from the dead. And in doing so, declared Jesus to be the Son of God. You see, all that Jesus said and all that Jesus done was rubber stamped, was validated by the resurrection. Somebody pays you with a check. You feel like you've received payment. You can stop chasing that person. But you still have that period in between. like kind of. I don't even understand with modern technology. It's still two or three days. You've got to wait for a check to clear. But two or three days later, you get confirmation. You get validation that the check was good. That the check was acceptable. You see, you can say that Jesus' life was the Payment for the penalty of our sin. Paid in full. Okay, that was the presentation, but what does the Father say? By raising Jesus from the dead, that was the Father's amen. That was payment cleared. Payment satisfactory. Paid in full. Listen. Oh my gosh. I'm going to get old school on you out here today. Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is the testimony of the church. This is the testimony of the scriptures. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He was delivered up as the payment for the penalty of our sin. And yet he was raised for our justification. We don't need to stand before God and justify ourselves. Father, you know what? Jesus died for me. And um, I'm sure you, like, you recognize that payment, right? That, that, that was good, right? Like, we don't have to have any conversation. 
The father's already acknowledged that he recognizes Jesus' payment by raising him from the dead. Praise be to God. And so therefore, will you put your faith, will you trust in Jesus? We put our trust in so many other things. My wife has two birthdays. It's true, it's true. She has two birthdays. And we only discovered this like quite later on in life after we were married and everything. If I'd known before we were married, I probably wouldn't have married her. It's quite an expensive thing, having two birthdays. <laughs> Not really. But she was told that she was born on the 31st of August. That's what her mum told her, her dad told her, her elder siblings, if you like, told her that she was born on the 31st of August. You're born in this world, you don't know anything, you don't know what the date that you was born apart from what you're told. And you trust those who are telling you. We go to register um, Kian's birth, and at the point we're just like, okay, cool, let's get some birth certificates, um, duplicates for ourselves. And we look, and it says August the 30th. And we're like, hmm, okay, how does that work? Now, if you know about the end of August, right, it's a bank holiday weekend, isn't it? And so somehow in the process, with it being a bank holiday weekend, the dates got confused. And back in those days, we had VHS, video recorder. And when you know you're setting the clock on there, like you can go back to the 70s to whatever, and you can go forward and see all the dates. So we used it like a calendar, and we went back to 71, and we, saw, and we verified, actually, she must have been born on the 30th. So for over 20 years, we celebrated her birthday on the 31st. But formally, like the Queen, she has a legal birthday, which is the 30th. All of that confusion because of the trust that was put in what was said. It goes to show how we exercise faith every day in our lives. If you believe, if you have faith in Jesus, you will be justified before God. If you choose to put your trust in Jesus, you will be justified before God. It's only by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, wonderful, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, this free gift of God in which we stand. Trust in Jesus, for he has conquered death and granted us access to the favor of God. It is sure. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I'm going to invite the team back. And I'm going to invite us to stand. Father God, we thank you for giving us assurance, confidence, certainty as we consider did Jesus really rise again? Did he really conquer the final frontier? Did he really overcome man's greatest enemy and with a resounding confident and clear response we're able to say yes yes Christ is risen risen indeed and our prayer is Lord that we would embrace that truth and the vastness of all that it represents 
Jesus died for our sins and was raised on the third day for our justification. Thank you, Lord God. May you open the eyes of our hearts. May we continually walk in the revelation of your truth, the revelation of yourself. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.